On November 7th, 1984, the watch industry was stunned as famed jewelry designer Gérald Genta unveiled a line of fine watches styled with Mickey Mouse, the Pink Panther, and Popeye? The industry had never before mixed pop culture and haute horology, and the outcry forced Genta to abandon the Montreal Bijou show. Was it really so bad? Shouldn't they have known this would happen? These are the Watch Files, where we tell the stories of events that changed horology history. So I'm Serge Maillard for Europa Star. Uh, we are a magazine founded in 1927. And uh, what we did uh, three years ago is that we started digitizing our archives. And among them, we really find some, uh, some pearls of horology and horological history. And I'm your co-host, Stephen Foskett. I'm publisher of Grail Watch and a contributor to WatchWiki, as well as Europa Star. And I have benefited tremendously from the archives of Europa Star, and it has served as a source of primary historical information in my research about the watch industry. Each episode of The Watch Files focuses on a different story, helping our audience better understand the people and the companies they hear about every day. So today we're talking about Gérald Genta. Who is he? Where did he come from? And what was so scandalous that he would get kicked out of one of the pr primary uh, Swiss watch fairs of the day? So Serge, let's start with that core question. Who is Gérald Genta and why should we care? So who, who is uh, Gérald Genta? Actually, that's... Uh really one of the greatest designers of, uh, of uh, Swiss and international watchmaking. And uh, what's interesting about him is that uh, today's day, we don't really know how many designs he's, he's really done. I mean, of course, we all have in mind uh, the Nautilus, the, 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 the Royal Oak, and the, the main, I would say the flagship uh, signature <laughs> uh, watches of, of, uh, of uh, Janta. But actually, uh, and there is actually a, a foundation that... Uh, uh, takes care of his heritage. He's designed hundreds of watches that uh, we don't even <laughs> really know who was behind it because uh, he had a, a bureau, an office with uh, with uh, dozens of designers. He was the master designer, of course, but he works for pretty much uh, any all the all the watch brands in the uh, and he had a very long uh, uh, career in watchmaking. So so this is this is really a, a interesting guy we're talking about. And uh, and in the last uh, years, we've really seen uh, some of his work coming back and some of his heritage, actually. I think it's most interesting that he um, famously designed, um, well, he would design on command, but he would also design on spec. And he would just go to a company and say, here, what do you think of this? Or, um, you know, he would, you know, maybe just kind of sketch something out in his sketchbook that was never sold, never presented, never anything. And so what we're hearing from the foundation now as they're going through his archives is they're finding more and more and more. Um, another thing that I think as, a, as a, a watch fan that's been interesting to me is hearing, as you say, all of the designs for things that he is not credited. So, of course, we know that he designed the Royal Oak for Audemars Piguet, and that was probably one of the most significant watch designs in the history of the industry. We know that he designed the Nautilus for Patek Philippe, which, again, was one of the most significant designs in the industry. But there are rumors that he was responsible for all sorts of other uh, watches. Um, I 
I hesitate to make any claims, but uh, you know, I, I have heard it rumored that he was designed that he designed the the uh, oyster quartz for Rolex, for example. But uh, I have no idea if that's true. Um, and of course, he's rumored as well to have designed some of the watches that he never designed. So, for example, the Vacheron Constantin overseas uh, that was designed by uh, Jörg Heisek, but not uh, not by Genta. But but that doesn't stop a lot of people from saying that uh, Genta designed it. And I think one of the reasons is, frankly, because his his um, inspiration of having a unified bracelet and watch, having a bezel that sits atop the bracelet, atop the foundation, um, and having this layer cake design has become such a signature in the industry that almost any watch that looks like that, even the, the new Tissot uh, PRX, could be said to be a Genta design, at least in, in spirit. Yeah, I mean, his his influence was was really going uh, way back, uh, beyond his, his own work in, in in some sense, and he was really, I mean, you you had this sense of uh, of uh, sporting timepieces and this sense of uh, really adding some 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 twist to it, and uh, um, I mean. Then his catalog is so so wide that it's difficult to to give him an, an exact style. But what what is for sure is that he always try to go against the trend, and that's what we're gonna see in today's story. Absolutely. Um, some of the other design signatures, of course, as I said, was the integrated bracelet. Another thing that uh, we're still seeing today is uh, he was fascinated by the interplay of different basic geometric shapes: the rectangle, the circle, and especially the octagon. And many, many, many Genta designs incorporate an octagonal bezel, um, including um, the uh, octo uh, case that uh, Bulgari uh, famously uses today. Um, so he started his own company, his own watch company, as early as 1984 and began, or I'm sorry, 1974, and had begun uh, producing his own watches at that time. Um, and he established what he called the creative watchmaking framework at that time as well. Um, and he was rapidly moving up in importance in the industry. It's safe to say that by 1980, um, there was no more significant designer, uh, especially in the high end of watches, the luxury segment, uh, the jewelry segment, uh, than Gerald Genta. So I guess next, let's turn and, and talk about the Salon Montre at Bijou. Um, you started talking about it earlier. Um, tell us a little bit, what is this event? So, so this event is really to bring about the best of Swiss uh, craftsmanship, uh, Swiss horology, and in the sense of uh, really the quality and not the volumes. So it focused a lot on jewelry watches, um, and and it regrouped a lot of different brands, which today is uh, is more and more challenging to do. But uh, of course, it was a smaller industry at the time, but it was already a global industry. So, so this showed the interesting feature about this show that is that is little known today, and we really have to dig uh, into the archives to, to to find back some 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 pictures about it and some some context because it disappeared in the it ended in the 90s, and uh, in the 90s then we had SIH, uh, of course, uh, Basel World going to a, a new dimension. Um, so, so. This, this was really a show that, uh, that was like an ambassador for, for Swiss craftsmanship, Swiss luxury watches, and uh, Patek, Vacheron, uh, Jaeger, um, um, of course, uh, Omega, uh, Breguet, were all, 
all participating brands. Uh, so fine watchmaking, uh, linked to jewelry, the best of Switzerland. It happened in Geneva, but it was also a traveling exhibition. Uh, very much a bit like the GPHJ today, where you have the, the exhibition around the world. So you had uh, editions in Tokyo, in, in Brazil, in, uh, in the US, uh, in, uh, in cities in Europe. So that, that was quite an important show to display the craftsmanship. And actually, if you, find, if you look into the archives of the Swiss television, you will even find an interview of Hans Wilsdorf at the Salon uh, Montre Bijou. So they, they, uh, they also opened their, their archives. And, and so, yeah, that, that was, uh, let's say, Swiss fine watchmaking uh, prior, uh, a, sh a show prior, Watches and Wonders and SHS and, uh, and, and the luxury shows we know today. Yeah, I think that uh, those of us who are kind of living in the industry in 2020, 2021, um, you know, well, maybe not 2020, um, we could look at it, as you said, as sort of like SIHH or maybe Dubai Watch Week or something. In, in other words, it was, you know, really the pinnacle of watchmaking. And to provide some context as well, um, by the time that the 1980s had come around, um, this was the height of the quartz crisis. But the quartz crisis... Uh, primarily affected the mainstream watches, um, and it affected many of the the higher end companies, but m mostly because um, it took away the sort of lower end foundational models. So in the 1980s, um, high end brands um, were still going very very strong. So brands, you know, notably uh, brands like Piaget and Corum. Um, Concord, who had just come up with the amazing ultra-thin delirium watch. Um, they were still selling watches um, that were made in Switzerland, but also were phenomenal, very high-end pieces. And um, uh, brands like Audemars Piguet, who were selling jewelry watches as well as, uh, you know, complicated watches and some little steel thing that Genta designed, um, they were really, really... Um, you know, rolling at that time. Um, and from my perspective, what had happened in the 80s was that the watch industry had really divided into sort of mass market quartz watches, um, gadget watches, which would be sort of the forerunners of today's um, smart watches. So you had calculator watches and LCD digital watches. Um, I had one that you could play video games on at that time. Um, and then still fine luxury watches. And that's what was shown at Montre Bijou. It was, yeah, it was, the, uh, as you say, the pinnacle of, uh, of watchmaking, because even during the age of quartz, I mean, you could have quartz watches, but you would have a lot of jewelry. You would have some kind of crafts associated with the technology. That was really what's, and, and, and in some way, that's really what's important still today. It's to show the craft that, that it's, uh, uh, we say horology is also the, the marriage of the crafts, beauty and the precision mechanics, of course, but also a sense of beauty and design. And, uh, and um, to come back to Gérald Janta, he was also someone who was very well aware of the, of the, of course, the, the, the impact uh, of uh, of watchmaking. So he worked on many different designs, but of course he was he was uh, he was born in Geneva. He was a, a pure watchmaking, let's say, product. But it changed it changed the environment in which he was operating. So he was feeling at ease in this environment, but he would feel at ease in also other environments which were not as luxurious as the Montrevisio Salon. 
So, so uh, let's let's take let's tell the story now. Now that we've kind of set the foundation. Yeah. So 1984, yeah. Montreux Bijou <laughs> in Geneva. Uh, what did uh, Gérald Janta bring to the show? So it was and. I am from Geneva too, so I'm uh, very well. You know, Geneva is uh, is a very serious city. I mean, well, you have the after party sometimes, <laughs> the SHH, but it's a serious place. And this show, uh, it was very serious. So when Jeb, uh, Janta arrived, and just just one sidebar, he he had his own brands, and he was working with uh, with different brands. So he was. It's also the way we, we, we're talking a lot about uh, collaborations today, but he was really some guy who, who had his own brand uh, and who would not hesitate working from, for different brands. There was this sense of, um, let's say, uh, open-minded. Um, when, when he arrived at the, at the show this, this day, November 1984, <laughs> um, he, he had his own booth. I mean, it was a small booth. It was a small exhibition. But uh, he arrived with a set of timepieces that were very well manufactured. But today it would not shock you. But on the watch, you had well-known cartoon figures such as Mickey Mouse, the Pink Panther, uh, there was a nude woman, there were, uh, so he, he had some, um, let's say, some iconography that came from a mix of uh, cartoon and a bit uh, provocative as well, of course, uh, but it was not associated with cheap watches in a way it was really this the, the same way you would you, you could say that uh the the royal oak was such a, a blast because it was a luxurious sports watches in some way with associating uh, a non-luxurious material with luxury <laughs> and uh, and uh, in in some way he was doing the same and what's important is he was always someone who was opening the horizon so he was opening this horizon to pop culture in some way. It had done, been done a bit in the past, but with this in the heart of Geneva, in the heart of the luxury watchmaking establishment. And that's what we, we, ha we found in, the, in this article from 1984. And uh, the, the article, the title is uh, These uh, Models That Cause a Stir at Montrébijou de Genève. And it's a, it's a report from uh, back in the days what, what's, what happens. <laughs> so... If, if I if I may if I may just follow, um, this uh, production was not welcomed by the organizers, and uh, they asked him to to uh, remove it or uh, to not to leave because they wouldn't say you leave because he was an important figure in the eighties. He wouldn't say okay. You know, in Switzerland we don't like to say things too bluntly, but let's say they were they were shocked. And you had Popeye, you had, uh, I'm mentioning Popeye because today we see a revival in the Popeye figure. <laughs> it's interesting. But so he was a forerunner in all of that. Um, the, the, the price of the watches were $10,000. So back in the days, that was, that was not uh, cheap. I mean, if you think $10,000 today is not, is not cheap, but in the 80s, it was really not cheap. Um, very well crafted. So the managers did not see things, I would say, the same way he saw things. Uh, we we wrote uh, back then in 1984. Uh, they they were not prepared to let themselves be touched by such gentle reminiscences. So 
they declared it made no differences that the models in question were made of gold and diamonds, adding coldly that such a serious exhibition, as it was their privilege to administer, had no room for mice, panthers, pope, and other unsuitable characters. So, <laughs> as you as you can as you can hear, uh, this was a bit of a clash. This was a bit of a clash, so uh, a Swiss clash. So not uh, not not too much noise, but still a clash. So, <laughs> indeed, and and I think that you know it's important, as you say, to note that there had been pop culture watches before. Um, I wrote on my yeah. blog another yeah. thing that I found in the Europa Star archives. Um, the original James Bond co-branded uh, watch, uh, not the one you're thinking. Um, it actually had uh, 007 on the on the crown and and a little gun in the advertising and so on. It was it was a toy. Um, similarly, you know, we had uh, Mickey Mouse watches for years. Um, uh, Ingersoll famously made Mickey Mouse watches. Uh, Seiko did later. Um, there were co-branding with automakers and so on. But that wasn't on the luxury side. That wasn't in Geneva. That wasn't with diamonds and jewels and costing $10,000. That was, uh, these were toys um, and, and trinkets. Um, and so when Genta showed up with uh, effectively, I mean, if, if you all are familiar with today's, uh, you know, Roman Jerome RJ watches with Tetris and Donkey Kong and Space Invaders, it was as if somebody plopped that down in the middle of a luxury show um, and, and people reacted about how you would think. Um, I mean, I think they didn't know what to do with this. Um, to, to me, the, the scandal as well, it reminds me of Andy Warhol and his use of pop culture and pop culture iconography. And I think that today um, we have grown to accept that pop culture icons can be freely mixed in with artworks. But, um, you know, when that happened, that really wasn't you know, wasn't acceptable. And it certainly wasn't acceptable in the, uh, the world of jewelry and high-end uh, horology. So they, they asked him to leave. Is that right? I mean, they, they said, basically, yeah, well, take, take, take these things off the show. Uh, yeah, they, they, um, they emptied the, his most exciting pieces because uh, he had other pieces. He didn't have only this one, but he himself didn't want to stay in these conditions. And, and he said that uh, uh, what we report is that he said something interesting. He said, there is no longer room, any room at Montrebijoux for an artist with something to say. Uh, Gérard Jantat told us sometime after this incident. And what's interesting is the word artist. Uh, he considered himself an artist, of course, even though he was working for an industry. And, and, and so you already have this mix. It, it was like a, a dialogue between two people two people maybe who didn't speak the same, the same language in some way, <laughs> uh, although everything was in French. Uh, he considered himself an artist with the freedom of the artist to express himself. And they considered that there was a realm for the industry that you couldn't go, I mean, outside of this realm in some way. And this was really a clash also because it was 1984, as you mentioned. 1984 was a bloody year for the Swiss watch industry, one of the worst, um, because the, the quartz crisis didn't impact immediately. And we say quartz crisis, there were many other things under this, let's say, common general term, but uh, in, in terms of methods of production and so on. But 1984 was really the, 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 among the worst of the worst. And 
this is really a, uh, the Swiss watch economy is at crossroads. You, either you you stick to a very kind of very conservative way of doing of doing things, or you try to open up your horizon. Um, uh, one year prior, that, there was the, the emergence of the Swatch, so that that, that was already uh, something that that was opening up the horizon. So the eighties were this period of transformation and. What I found interesting in this uh, episode is that you really have this clash because sometimes you have a transition period, but you don't have one event that symbolizes it. And what I found in this event was that it it symbolizes the 80s for Swiss watchmaking. You have people who say uh, quartz is the future. There is no future for, for, for mechanical watchmaking. You have people, other people who say, we have, in Switzerland, we don't know how to do quartz. We will stick to, to, to mechanical watches and, 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 and be, I mean, we want to be there. They were quite rigid about it. And then you have a guy like Janta. He worked prior to quartz and he worked after quartz. And in some way, he accompanied this transition. And this anecdote tells so much about it. That's, that's really what what makes sense, uh, how to make sense of this anecdote. This is what, what, what we found. Really. I have to agree. And, and I think that it is, it's just, it's almost too perfect that it happened in 1984. So as you said, this is the year after the Swatch and it's the year before at uh, Baselworld, IWC and Jeja Lecoultre came in with complicated mechanical watches. And I think it's safe to say that the Swatch helped to save the Swiss watch industry. Complicated mechanical watches were the mechanism by which the Swiss watch industry saved itself. And the idea that watches could be art and not just function or jewelry was, I think, the the unifying theme that allowed the industry to move forward. And so Mm -hmm. essentially we have this situation where, um, you know, SMH, which became Swatch Group, which now owns, you know, half the industry, um, essentially was able to save itself financially thanks to people like Hayek. Um, IWC and Jeje Lecoultre and Audemars Piguet and others showed the industry that it had something of value apart from from quartz, and that is mechanical, uh, complicated watchmaking. And Genta showed the, showed the industry that they that there was a place for artistry, for real artistry. And as you say, these were the trends that saved the watch industry, and it all happened in just a couple of years. And I think that it's interesting as well that basically the emergence of the whole world of independent watchmakers happened uh-huh, uh-huh, very uh-huh. shortly after this. So uh, again, it, I, I don't know if I've even talked to you about this, but in the pages of the archives, I found the letter um, about uh, founding the AHCI, um, uh-huh. where they're asking uh-huh. independent watchmakers to come and join the this new uh, academy to promote independent watchmaking. And this was three years later. Yeah, I think a lot of these these guys they were at a transition point. They saw that the the, the, the Swiss industry as it was 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 changing, and they they had to regroup in some way because Janta clearly he didn't share the spirit of the organizers of the show. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, well, that's that's not new. You could say uh, today we see the same. But uh, he he didn't he didn't feel. I guess he didn't feel he was working in the same industry in the same world because he considered himself an artist as well. And so so I think it's it's uh, the fact that you have the AHCI. Uh, so the the independence grouping is also was also to create some sense of community that uh, of like-minded people. They all have their own niche, their own segments, but they didn't recognize themselves in the Swiss watchmaking establishments. Uh, and and uh, I don't know if there is a link between this anecdote and the creation of the HCI. Probably not. But there is a time coincidence that is interesting, definitely. Well, in fact, um, so Calabresi and Sven Anderson came together to form the Academy um, that same year, 1984. And so I would not be at all surprised if there was a connection. But but clearly, um, you know, Gentile was onto something here. He understood that artistry and and and, you know, capital A art was a path forward. And he certainly laid the foundation after that. So he decided that, uh, you know, this was not the place for him. But of course, he did continue in the industry and he did continue to innovate. And he innovated on complicated mechanical pieces. Um, he in innovated on art and jewelry and design. And he was part of the resurgence of the industry in the 80s and the 90s until his death. Um, you know, he was certainly a major contributor to the revitalization of the watch industry and and he showed the path forward could you imagine today if you 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 have a similar event in a, in a in a show like uh, you have a quite like let's say a famous designer famous artist uh the 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 show manager would say no this this doesn't fit our our standards and you have to leave that, that that's that's crazy because also there there is, uh, let's say, the selection is also. I think you have two things. The the shows. Uh, this this was a show that really was regrouping uh, most of watchmaking in Switzerland, and this was a smaller industry, and 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 things that would shock people maybe then don't shock us today. Of course, maybe other things that didn't shock them would shock us today. And, um, and, 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 and then you, you, you have, he didn't feel really committed to this, uh, to this uh, show that he had to apply the same standard. But it brings the question really of also today, who do you accept in a show? You also accept uh, exhibitors, for instance, that do not match your exact idea of a luxury show. And what is the perimeter? There's a, the, the FHH always has this uh, word of uh, perimeter. What is the perimeter of luxury? What does it encompass? Uh, this episode was really, what was shocking was this uh, cartoon figures mixed with uh, luxury uh, materials. And, um, and, 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 and in some way you always have this uh, uh, widening of the spectrum of horology. And this has happened for maybe, especially then in the 2000s, uh, especially since maybe 2000, uh, 
2015, which was really this golden age of watchmaking between 2004, 2014, uh, in terms of, let's say, of sales, but also in terms of creativity, uh, because you had all these new brands and these new creators, and they really widened the spectrum of horology. And they were also evolving in, a, in an era since the 2000s where it was okay to widen uh, the spectrum of horology because they were part of an ecosystem. But back then he was alone with his models in this very conservative show and he had to fight for it. And, and that's why he's, in this sense, he was quite kind of a pioneer and this anecdote shows it because he was alone. He didn't have other exhibitors doing the same work and he could rely on them to form like a lobbying group. <laughs> he had to fight alone. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, and that is actually why I do draw a connection between this and what the HCI did. So, um, you know, I, and just to remind people as well, um, you know, the shows didn't allow even Japanese companies to come and exhibit at Baselworld until 1986. Um, you know, the HCI first appeared at Basel in 1989, um, and they started their own booth, and they were really an insurgent group who... Uh, came in and said, we're doing different things. We're doing wonderful things and we're going to upset, you know, the apple cart. And as you say, as the industry built and as the industry reformed, um, you know, the major companies consolidated around 2000. Um, and then this, there was this wonderful explosion of sort of independence and big independence after 2000 that brought us so many wonderful pieces. Um, any final words before we go, Serge? Yeah, just you, you mentioned the Japanese at Basel World, uh, well, the Basel Fair. Um, actually, we, we had a booth in the Basel Fair and we had the CEO of Citizen uh, using our booth as a kind of a basis in the, that was in the, in the 70s. Well, I, I don't remember exactly the, the year they, they joined Basel, the Basel Fair, but he was using our own booth as a, as a basis and he was doing his appointment, going to one place, another, and you imagine, well, uh, it's, it's a huge company, but it took, a, it took a while. And another anecdote was that uh, that was at the time of my grandfather, but uh, when they the magazine accepted uh, um, uh, advertisement from uh, from French <laughs> watchmakers. That caused a stir too, because the Swiss were not happy. So you always have this tension between uh, what is the what what is the the horizon, what is the the the, the, the gameplay, what what is your playground in, in some way. And that, I think that's a question that uh, uh, Swiss watchmaking still has uh, sometimes trouble uh, answering. Uh, who is part of our ecosystem. And yeah, so that's, I, I, I won't go too far, but I would say today you, you, you see a lot of uh, actors that were not deemed, let's say, legitimate in the past, and, and they become legitimate, they become part of the ecosystem. And that's a growing ecosystem. And in a way, a healthy ecosystem manages to, to let's say, integrate uh, components that look a bit weird, <laughs> like Tishanta in 1984 and his uh, Pink Panther watches. Really, once again, I think that if, if you ask an average watch consumer what was um, Gerald Genta's legacy, they would probably say, oh, it was, you know, the Nautilus or it was the Royal Oak. Um, many of them wouldn't understand that part of his legacy as well was um, bringing artistry and new ideas and new concepts into art 
and there wouldn't be a Roman Geron Tetris watch. There would not be an MBNF or a, you know, Moser Swiss Alp watch if it hadn't been for somebody like Genta saying it's okay. It's okay to have some fun. It's okay to mix high and low culture and it's okay to build something remarkable. So to me, that's the message and that's the most interesting outcome from this wonderful, wonderful story. Um, Serge, thank you so much for sharing it. Um, thank you for finding it in the archives. Uh, those of you who are interested in following more, um, there is an article um, online uh, that Serge wrote uh, about this, which includes the entire, the, the, the text of a previous Europa Star article from 1984 uh, about the incident um, with a lot of, you know, kind of firsthand accounts. And this is the kind of thing that we find when we look back in the archives of the magazine. So I welcome you all to look for it. Um, thank you everyone for joining us as we uh, record uh, the watch files here on Clubhouse. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Uh, please join the Europa Star Club as well. You'll receive a, a wonderful magazine uh, in addition to being able to browse the archives of the magazine uh, all the way back to 1950 and you know, maybe, uh, maybe even before. Um, please also do check out my work at uh, grailwatch.com and uh, WatchWiki. And uh, please do join the Watch Club if you want to uh, talk watches here on Clubhouse in the future. Mm -hmm.